Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi and welcome to LawPod. My name is Kieran O'Kelly. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Law and I coordinate the LM in Law and Technology. And I'm joined by Professor Harry Van Buren from St. Thomas University in Minnesota and by my colleague Kira Hackett in the School of Law. Kira, do you want to introduce yourselves? Yes, I am Dr. Kira Hackett. I'm a senior lecturer here in the School of Law and I'm currently on maternity leave. So you may hear during this episode um, noises from the reason I'm on maternity leave, who is nine weeks old. So apologies if she interferes with, with the discussion here today. And I'm Harry Van Buren. I'm an honorary professor at uh, Queen's uh, School of Law. I'm currently at the University of St. Thomas, although I am moving in about five weeks to the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, where I'm taking the Patent Endowed Chair in Business Ethics. Thanks very much, Kira and Harry. The topic for today's discussion is co-authoring. The three of us are uh, prolific co-authors, um, and uh, we've become very interested in discussing the practice of co-authoring itself. Um, that is, publishing or working on and publishing papers with other people. We do tend to spend time, for instance, when we were PhD students, learning and being trained in the art of being a, a sole scholar. Uh, and there is kind of, you know, a cultural and social image of the academic as a solitary worker, somebody who uh, works whether in a lab or in um, in an office on their own. Well, what problems, Kira, do you think this image of the academic throws up, and you know, what are the, the kind of the limitations of the individual expertise, individual as as a, a solitary scholar? Thanks, Kieran. Yeah, I it, this was something that I struggled with myself. So I got my PhD in 2009, but it wasn't until 2016 that I co-authored with anybody. And probably during that time, I found it very hard to navigate the day-to-day of publishing, the finding out where do you publish, um, how do you work your way through a review process and so on, because I hadn't had that expertise of working with someone who'd been through it before. And as a very early career scholar, um, that was something that I very much did struggle with. And I did find that this had a knock-on impact on my confidence. Um, I was submitting to journals that perhaps my work wasn't quite suited for, but I maybe didn't realise that. And that was something that with a little bit of guidance, mentorship, even through the co-authoring process that has now in later years really, really helped to alleviate. Um, Working with others has given me much more confidence in my skill set, in my strengths. It has also made me increasingly aware of my weaknesses, which I think is important too, to recognise for me, methodology would be something that I would struggle with a little bit more but if I am co-authoring with someone like for instance Kieran, who is brilliant on data capturing and interpreting data then we can maybe build um, a stronger paper for an instant. Definitely confidence is one thing making you acutely aware of your strengths as a co-author so and also then improving where you might have been perhaps weaker in the past. 
I think that's brilliant, Kira, and a great introduction to the topic. Uh, you know, the three of us have talked about this a lot. And I think, you know, the, the idea of confidence and understanding your mm. own skills and, and thinking about how another person, even just the conversation with other people, can enhance our skills is, is so important. I think we'll come back to confidence uh, towards yeah. the end and, and really pick up on that again. But Harry, you know, formally, I suppose, as professionals, we talk a lot about networking and I can I kind of I get a sense that you know networking is something that that when we imagine it we do between panels at a conference and then we're back into giving my paper again giving your paper again etc but I think we could have a more generous and broader sense of what what networking is including through co-authoring building relationships by writing with people I don't know do you have thoughts about that uh, absolutely I think that we have this view of networking in a, in a very narrow uh, sense that you go into a relationship uh, and you have a particular goal that you're trying to uh, achieve. So you say, I want to find a co-author that will help me do X. And I really think that's the wrong way around because for me, the best co-authoring relationships come up very organically. As you pointed out, uh, Kiran, you'll meet people during panels, but sometimes the best co-authoring relationships come out of just conversations over coffee or over out lunch. I often uh, tell junior faculty members and doctoral students that eventually to start a co-authoring relationship, you either have to ask somebody to be a co-author or be asked. But how do you get to that point? I think you get to that point by meeting lots of people, having lots of uh, conversations, and being open to the possibility of exchanging ideas. Sometimes co-authoring relationships emerge because you give a friendly read of a paper for one of your uh, colleagues, and that sparks an idea. So I think one of the real challenges for early stage scholars is not just how do you establish relationships, but Building on Kira's point, how do you build the co-op, the confidence necessary to think of yourself as a potential co-author and someone who can bring something really significant to a intellectual relationship? So it's about being valued as, it's recognizing yourself as somebody who can be valued, is that right? It's recognize your, recognizing yourself as someone who can be valued. And I think that's a real challenge for folks at the early stages of their career. So new doctoral students or people who have just finished their PhDs might think to themselves, well, I'm not a senior scholar. I don't have a name in the field. But what I say to those folks is you have the most up-to-date training in your field. You probably have the best methods relative to other folks. You have a different perspective. And so the point I would always come back to is you bring unique strengths to any co-authoring uh, relationship. And the big challenge for early stage scholars is to recognize that while at the same time being open to the skills and expertise of others. I would totally agree with that. I think from my own experience, working with very early career scholars has actually maybe been the most rewarding. And not only is that working with doctoral students, we have done work in the past with master's students, um, report writing and so on for the Department of Justice here in Northern Ireland. And I have found that really fascinating to see how a different perspective, um, different enthusiasms can really enrich the, the publication process. But how do you switch then from with master's student, for instance, um, uh, you know, from our perspective, so I'm asking you two questions. From our perspective, how do you switch from 
kind of teaching them how to write to that sort of sense of we are co-authors, we're, we're, we're actually generating a project together. And how do you think, I mean, we can't read into people's minds, but how do you think they regard you? Do you think that a student can, you know, take that step of sort of pushing back on ideas and saying, no, I think the emphasis should be here and having that conversation? I think the important point or the important part of the co-authoring relationship in that context is that you're empowering the student um, rather than telling them this is what you need to do, you do X and I do Y. So I think it's encouraging them to develop their own writing standards. Like we ourselves, like the, the power of authoring is not something that is complete at this stage. It's, it's a process and every paper that we write, we're continually improving or we should be in continually improving. So we all have to start somewhere. So I think that maybe it's recognising that with master's students that um, this is not going to be the best thing that you ever write, but it's about how you develop on your journey and maybe not to say that you're holding their hand, you're helping guide them on that journey, um, whilst at the same time hopefully teaching them something about the writing process, but at the same time you're learning from them. That makes mm. sense. No, absolutely, it does. Um, I do. I, I kind of I love that point about this. Isn't nothing is the best thing you'll ever write in the mm. sense of at least you know as you're writing it, um, uh, everything is joining in a conversation. And that's what I think is so interesting about co-authoring is is that the process itself is yeah. a conversation. You know, um, Harry, uh, just just to kind of try and be be a bit more specific. Can can you talk about you know take a a project where you've co-authored, where did it start? I'll talk about a couple of uh, different uh, projects. One thing that the three of us have in common is an interest in business and uh, human rights. So a recent paper that has just come out with Judith Schrump-Sterling at the University of Geneva and Florian Bechstein at the University of St. Gallen emerged out of a set of conversations we have been having for years. And the set of conversations we have been having had focused on why we are not big fans of the corporate social responsibility concept and why we were attracted to business and human rights. And so long before we had started this paper, and Judith and I have written a number of things together, we have been talking about our frustrations with CSR as a field. That led us, when there was an opportunity in a special issue, to really flesh out those conversations. And it went through a very long and convoluted uh, review process. This is the uh, paper that I both told you about with the 4,820-word review from a single uh, reviewer. And this is where co having co-authors is really helpful because a review like that can scar you, and you can sort of work through that together. But that paper, although it took us a year and a half to write and get through the review process, that had been something that had been built over four or five uh, years. A second project, which I currently have underway, is with my uh, uh, co-author, Tanushri Jain, who's moving to Copenhagen uh, Business uh, School. And it emerged organically because we were chatting via WhatsApp. We had a upcoming conference deadline for the International Association for Business and Society Conference in San Francisco. And so we send a, a message to each other essentially saying, what is it that we're going to write about? Now, we've written on a variety of uh, topics. In about 15 minutes via WhatsApp, we had outlined the paper. 
Two days later, we had a 3,000-word uh, abstract uh, for the uh, conference, and that's really where having an existing co-authoring relationship where you know what you're good at, you know what your interests are, can really help speed things along very quickly. So sometimes these emerge over long conversations, and sometimes they emerge because you have a deadline and you just want to write something. It's, it's interesting. I was... Um my first experiences with co-authoring was when I was a postdoctoral scholar here, and um, we had a Fulbright fellow named Melvin Dubnik um, in um, the Institute of Governance, as was where, where I was, and it was from conversations. It was coffee-fueled co-authoring. Uh, it's what happened. I had an intuition about an area that of mutual interest to us on accountability. I had a sense that there was. Um, something interesting to say from my perspective that I had something interesting to say but it really wasn't formed and this senior scholar who was really good at, at kind of systematizing uh, intuitions uh, almost took me aside and guided me through the writing process but also from a perspective where I had a specific set of skills and and he had a, a separate set of skills so um, it was uh it was really fruitful from that, but it was the coffee. It was the it was the third author. Harry, you wanted to. So it uh, so a couple of things that jump out at me. One is there could be a line of conversation about different forms of beverage that fuel different sorts of co-authoring. <laughs> yes. So coffee fueled, lager fueled, and then we can go on and on. But Karen, you also said something that was really important, in that you had. And intuition. Now, I often refer to these as quarter-baked ideas, or maybe not even quarter-baked. They're sort of mixed, and I don't know where they uh, they necessarily go. And one of the real benefits of co-authoring, and I've been on both ends of this, as a person who's had the quarter-baked idea and the person who's heard someone else's quarter-baked idea. And it's through that conversation and co-authoring that you take this idea or this intuition and you re really bring it to fruition. Yeah, there is a ritual to writing. It has to take a certain shape, academic writing, and the intuitions have to be formed and engineered in, in a little way. It's very hard to do that alone. Kira? Yeah, I, no, just a couple of thoughts whenever we're talking there. For me, the co-authoring relationship started off whenever I had been in a field, like yourself, Harry, CSR, and I was getting quite frustrated with the field. And I think perhaps, Kieran, this would tie in with you as well. I would see myself as in the more socio end of socio-legal work. And I found it quite hard to try and navigate or sidestep into the field of business and human rights where I would see myself today because it was more maybe legal than perhaps I was used to with CSR. So it was with working with a co-author, in this case, uh, Luke Moffat, who is a reader in the School of Law here, and he was able to maybe guide me through the, the more doctrinal work um, that perhaps took took me in that sidestep and again it was through conversations as well how am I supposed to make this move across and he was like well how don't why don't we write a paper and we'll talk about how you bridge that gap and that's that actually was what the paper ended up being called and I think then then that's something Kieran that that we have done and work that we have co-authored on as well we have maybe looked at the process of co-authoring that it's not just about the articles although that's really important and the chapters we've also co-authored maybe on case notes and on blogs and um, on policy papers to nearly take an idea and deal with it across the spectrum of different types of um, publications that there are out there. And I think maybe that's important to note as well, even the likes of a podcast where we are drawing on different expertise 
um, as well. Yeah, I think that that's that's really important, and and it just it goes to show that the the concept of the output, you know, certainly in in UK academia, is thankfully expanding, and you know, just having smaller pieces, almost smaller bits of work, where we're trying to specify something or we're trying to find a corner of the conversation yeah. that really could could develop is very important. Do you think, Kira, that that, for instance, in your experience with with Luke. Did you come to a greater understanding of yourself and your skill set as an expansive thing, not as a limitation, but as, as something that, that actually l- helped you kind of grow as a scholar through that relationship? Yes, absolutely. Um, I find that there really is value in a law school on being more social than legal. Um, and I find that that was something that perhaps we, we maybe don't celebrate enough. We do tend to think of ourselves a bit of square pegs and round holes. If we are socio-legal scholars, how do we make ourselves fit in a law school? And I think it made me recognise that there, there is a real place for that type of work, that type of knowledge and expertise. Um, and that, that that's important to recognise as well. Um, I'd say maybe working with you more recently, Kieran, I have learnt a lot more um, because I think with the earlier relationships with co-authoring, it was more about knowledge and perhaps writing, but now it's more thinking about different methods and methodology and how you can unpack legal problems in a more socio-legal way. Yes, I think one of the depressing things, of course, is that you were the socio-legal scholar with Luke. And when it came to me, I was the even more socio-legal <laughs> scholar, where the word legal is almost dropped from the conversation entirely. Um, and I rely on your legal expertise to supplement um, intuitions I've had methodologically or where I think we could talk about language methodologically. Harry? And expertise really changes over time as mm. well. So. Early in my career, I was doing more philosophical and normative at work, but ironically, I was also doing some more quantitative at work. In the last few years, I've shifted much more into qualitative uh, methodologies, uh, more uh, theory uh, building. And so one of the things to think about is your career really has cycles and it shifts over time. And things, you develop uh, capabilities and uh, skills, and you learn to really specialize in what you do best. But those shifts also really help you in co-authoring. So when I'm doing quantitative research, I'm not really doing most of the data analysis these days, but working with people that can uh, do that and do that very well, I can bring different sorts of lenses. I can bring a more conceptual lens or think about what the results have to say for theory. So I think it's really important for scholars to be open to how their careers and their expertise are going to shift and change over time. That's absolutely, you know, it's it's crucial. And how our personalities shift over time, how our confidence changes over time, you know, depending on what's, you know, what's going on in our lives and, uh, you know, how we're encountering the world. I think this all comes into play. And I have to say, I, I think for me, one of the things as I think about, you know, how I've developed over time is that the co-authoring relationship, one of the things is it's stabilised a lot of that. You know, you're, you're able to, on those days when, as a single author, you know, it's not really not much is going to happen, having the conversation with the co-author, having the, 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 the discussion and the relationship with them has, you know, a, a, an invigorating effect. But I think as well with co-authoring, you see the impacts on your single authored work because all of a sudden you now have a wider network of people that you can bounce ideas off. You yeah. can say, I'm writing this paper, I'm struggling with this section, would you mind having a read of it? 
And whereas before, well, certainly I would have been inclined to have had a full draft maybe written and perhaps something that I thought was polished before I sent it out to people to to give even a quick read off. Whereas now I'm maybe more accustomed to sending sections out um, or, or even just over a coffee. So I do think that it, a building on your co-authoring does have a huge and beneficial impact on your singled, author, singled authored work as well. It's really interesting. It's, it's the, the two worst kinds of feedback you can get is, oh, this is so good, yeah. when it doesn't sound sin- sincere, and this is terrible, you should resign. <laughs> this is awful. Give your PhD back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we demand it back. And actually, there's a real skill in um, saying to somebody that this this isn't working, some, some concept isn't working, and needs to be revisited, and needs to be revised. And there, there's a skill you have to learn to trust how the other person is saying it and what they're saying it, and to find the person who you can trust is going to say mm. the negative to you in a way that you know that this is bringing you forward in a way. So it's that that keeping the, the, the forward momentum while stopping somebody and saying, take this new track. And I think that that's really, really crucial. And I think then with, with single authoring, that's where it comes in is we learn through co-authoring how to, how to do that. So And so for me, respect and reciprocity are really important scholarly uh, values. So learning to give and receive feedback in a respectful way. But the point that Kira uh, made about sending sections uh, out, uh, whether it's for a co-authored piece or a solo-authored uh, piece, that works only if Kira, in turn, is willing to read other people's work. And she's read my work, I've read her uh, work, we've provided uh, comments, and a big part of building a scholarly network is building a reputation of yourself as someone who's good to work with and someone who puts positive energy and inputs into the system and uh, contributes the kinds of feedback and interactions that enrich other people's work. Yeah, and to be kind. And I think that that means more than what Kieran says to say something that is very, very good. I think being a kind person in academia is someone that's recognising, no, this needs a little bit more work, but to be able to deliver that feedback in a way that's not soul-destroying for the early career author or her mid or later career author that, that is seeking your advice. It's taking that next step, isn't it? To say, yeah. So this, this doesn't work. Have you thought about something and even when it's not in your kind of wheelhouse in terms of skills or in terms of knowledge sort of trying to to find some way of of saying to somebody you know perhaps this would work and even by saying no that wouldn't work and explaining why it wouldn't work somebody might get the inspiration to move on to the next the next thing absolutely but it also helps you then even uh helps me say give peer reviews now on work because i'm now aware of of how you deliver feedback how you can how you can provide feedback on a piece where it's maybe not quite in your wheelhouse, uh, as you said, Kieran. Mm. Harry, I, I just I kind of want to come down to process. You know, so the logistics of writing a paper with somebody else. And I know my strategy for writing a single author paper is to agonise for months until I'm late, mm-hmm. and then panic. And then write something as fast as I can, and then I'm in the middle of that right now. <laughs> Congratulations! <laughs> it's an, it's a wonderful experience. Um, so co-authoring. Let's start. I, I'm going to ask you a few questions, and then Kira, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you. Um, the initial idea. I think you you explained it comes from the quarter baked work that you then or I have an insight or I heard a presentation or I read an article on the uh, on the uh, news 
And I often refer to this as uh, in terms of different roles. So uh, one of the roles that's really important is what I call the opener role. So somebody has to introduce not just the idea, but the possibility of some sort of research uh, collaboration. And there are some people that are brilliant at that, that are really good at identifying a gap in the literature and starting to assemble a co-author uh, team. An important part of a process is figuring out what is it you're going to write about? What is the research question? Where are we going to target this work? And so there are some people that are really good at conceptualizing the idea, opening the conversation, and organizing the author uh, team. Do you think that with co-authoring, it's necessary to have kind of a peacemaker? Do you think, Kira, that, you know, that somebody would take the lead on, you know, kind of dealing with, with when tensions arrive? Not, not interpersonal tensions, kind of conceptual tensions, do you think? Or do you think that that's, that's part of the collaboration? I would say that that's part of the collaboration, but maybe that's just been my experience so far of the people that I have worked with. There hasn't necessarily been tensions that couldn't be worked out with a cup of coffee or whatever in a conversation, um, but that possibly does depend on the personalities involved. I don't, I don't know how you'd feel on that. I, I think I, I largely agree. One of the, the hard things, I think this comes back to the previous part of the discussion, one of the, the, the hard things uh, for me, certainly, is to know when I'm stuck. No, to know when I'm stuck fast, mm-hmm. as opposed to simply working slowly. <laughs> um, and um, you've both had experience of me working slowly. Um, <laughs> and it's, I'm sure, very hard from somebody else's point of view to understand, is Kieran working slowly or is he stuck fast? Um, and, and part of the self-awareness required in co-authoring is, is to announce that you're stuck. Please help. You know, I, I've, I've, come to, I've come to a barrier here. Um, and, and I suppose it's those sorts of tensions I'm quite interested in, you know, as, as well as the kind of interpersonal stuff, you know, Harry. And when I think about the peacekeeper role in co-authoring, I think I might differentiate between the first time a particular team is working on a project where you haven't really figured out the flow of ideas and who does what versus ongoing co-authoring relationships. So I have a couple of co-authors I've been writing with for more than uh, 10 uh, years, and we've figured out what each person is good at. We can have a cup of coffee, virtually or otherwise, but when it's a new author team and you've not really figured out that culture of collaboration, that's often where you you can get clashes of ideas or clashes of working uh, styles. And then in that case, sometimes having someone who's going to step in and try to calm the waters could be a really useful role. Yeah, I think maybe that's something that I have realized is that I love a deadline uh, and I would be happy to submit maybe less finished or less complete work so long as I meet that deadline, whereas other people that I've worked with tend to be more about, um, not looking at anyone in particular, (laughs) tend to be more about getting that idea across. And that has been something that has been a really positive thing for me to realize that it's okay to be a week or two late as long as the piece is better for it. And that it's not just procrastination, it is actually about improving the finished piece. And that's something that I have had to work with because I know know that that's my, um, that that's how I can be a pain whenever people's co-authoring with me because I'm like, the deadline is the 1st of July, is it done? No. For the record Um, on LawPod. Uh, I don't know who Kira is talking about. <laughs> no. uh, 
Um, uh, this is in some ways a mundane question and might come back to that I'm a little bit techy. Um, and in some ways, maybe it comes to the heart of something about co-authoring. How do both of you keep track of drafts of papers without kind of losing the will to live? Uh, Kira, do you, how, how do we do that logistically? I am not techy at all. So I have my drafts numbered um, either by the date where I have received them or completed them um, or simply one, two, three, four. And it's about trying to keep track with them. So in that way, I am probably not a good person to ask on that. You ever use kind of things like Google Docs? Well, Google Docs, yes, I was thinking about that, but Google Docs has its limitations. I would find like things like um, footnoting and so on can be very difficult for Google Docs. So I think it's great for an initial idea. And actually, one of the things that I'm really going to try and impose on students whenever I come back to work, impose is maybe the wrong verb to use there, is to for students to collaborate on notes and comments in class, and co-authoring nearly on their class notes. Um, but I think for a final draft of work, Google Docs doesn't work for me. It does work for grant applications, maybe more so, but um, I find the footnoting frustrates me because then I have to um, change it into a Word doc and then and then go through the um, footnotes. Well, I won't inflict a full podcast on everybody on the tech of this. <laughs> Harry? Uh, I've done it in various uh, ways. A lot depends on where the manuscript is. Mm. Sometimes if you're really trying to work out how concepts in a paper fit together. Google Docs can work really well. It can the, Google Docs can also work well if you're doing the final editing uh, together, not necessarily with uh, footnotes and things like that, although mercifully, footnotes are less important in uh, management uh, scholarship than they are in law, which I've learned uh, very, very uh, recently, because then you can go line by line through the document together. Sometimes, it makes more sense to establish an order of who's going to do what uh, in terms of looking at the uh, paper. So it might be that I say, I'll look at it today, I'll put my section in or my comments, and then uh, whip it around to the other uh, co-authors. Uh, there's also the, uh, the task of who's going to get the paper over the finish line in terms of citations and proofreading and things uh, things like that. So thinking about my own roles in co-authoring, I'm really good at opening and really good at closing. So for some reason, I'm in, in no other sphere of my life am I detail-oriented, but when it comes to getting a, a paper ready for submission or to get the revision back, I'm really good at formatting and final uh, proofreading. It's the bit in the middle. It's the organizing uh, bit that uh, sometimes uh, I really uh, struggle with, and I've learned this about myself. And so I work with co-authors that are brilliant at uh, the middle part of that, uh, which is getting the half-baked idea to a point where you can edit it and submit it. Yeah, I think I'm quite similar, actually. I think I can get an idea started, and I, I love um getting the author guidelines kind of completed for a journal and the citations and so on. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay with writing the review and the letter back to the reviewers. But for the middle bit, I, I very definitely rely on, on Kieran, I have to say, for his expertise, definitely with data and stuff. His slow, dogged expertise <laughs> very often. Um, yeah, I, I mean, in fact, I, I have in my notes here, you know, how do you know when a paper is done? And actually, that's not a 
question for the purposes of podcast. I find it quite hard to know when a paper is done. This is this is done enough. It comes back to what you were saying earlier, Kira, about um, uh, you know understanding this isn't perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect, um, and and also you know that um, we have now made a contribution and it's ready to to enter the, the world you know yes, I find that very hard I think it's just have you made have you added enough to the conversation that people might recognise that oh the conversation has been moved on by your contribution and I think that that can be really hard to recognise but at the same time you only have a finite number of words and how do you best package those words to, to release them into the world <laughs> but I want to add something a little bit different to that because one thing we've not talked about is the incentives that different parties in the co-authoring relationship have. So let's say, for example, you're working with a junior scholar for whom this paper is going to be fundamental for for tenure or promotion. Then that's obviously going to guide not just the writing process, but when the deadlines uh, are as well. So one of the things that I find really useful early in a conversation is not just figure out what the paper is about, that's the fun bit, but also what do different parties need to get out of the relationship in terms of tier of uh, journal, timing, because that's then also going to affect when you think the paper is done. I mean, that brings me very neatly on, Harry, just to, to kind of deepen that to the ethical issues in, in co-authoring. We, we have a certain sense of research ethics where there are human subjects, where universities set up processes and all that. But the ethics of research are so much wider than that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and co-authoring, it strikes me, has its own ethical sort of component to it. Um, and it has to do with power. Absolutely. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? I've really become aware of this because over the course of your academic career, you start as a doctoral student, you move from being a doctoral student to um, a new scholar, then you get tenure, and then you progress over your career. And one of the things I didn't realize early on when I got tenure and promotion was I was in a position of power relative to doctoral students, junior faculty members. Now, this really has implications for co-authoring because many of us are familiar. I've had it happen myself. I've seen it happen to others where a senior scholar comes in on a paper, contributes his or her name and 5% of the work, and then labels him or herself uh, first author. So there are issues related to power as they affect who gets credit uh, for the uh, work. And over time, I've really taken the uh, perspective that a big part of being a co-author as a senior scholar is to help junior scholars build names for themselves. So it's taking a more subordinate uh, position, so being second rather than first uh, author. I think it also really requires ethical reflection in terms of, as a co-author, what am I contributing to the project and how much credit am I claiming uh, for it? So there's a lot more that I could say about the ethics of uh, co-authoring, but issues related to power are really important. And for junior scholars, it's really standing up for themselves and the work that they're doing. And for senior scholars, it's really thinking about whether or not they're taking advantage of their position of power to claim more credit than they ought to be. 
Kira, I have a similar question for you. This is really an ethics question as well. So we've talked about those power differentiations. We've talked about being really explicit and self-conscious in, in terms of um, uh, those relationships. But there are kind of ethics of communication as well in um, in co-authoring, you know, and thinking about how to communicate and thinking about frustration, thinking about uh, things like that, that seem to go beyond the ordinary day-to-day manners that people just ought to have. Yes. I don't know, do you want to say? One of the overarching things that I would say is it's not everybody that you will be co-authoring with and it's not everybody that you want to be co-authoring with. So before you enter into a co-authoring relationship, make sure that this is someone that you can work with. Make sure it is someone that you feel you can stand up to if you feel that there is a line being crossed in terms of communications and so on and make sure that you're not going to be taken advantage of. And I think this is particularly the case if you are a a new scholar, if you are trying to emerge into a field that you may feel that you can benefit more by by being involved with someone who is much more senior in a co-authoring relationship. But unless you get um, kind of respect, unless you feel that your work has been valued, I, I don't think it's necessarily worth it. With regard to the different communications involved, um, I think, again, that depends on the personalities involved. Sometimes this will remain very formal over like email. Sometimes it can be done in the comments document um, or or in the document that you're working with. Um, But again, most people, well, anybody that I have worked with, I've had a very positive relationship in that regard with. um, But I'm not sure. Maybe, Harry, did you you want to jump in there? Yeah, just to add a little bit to that. I think it's really important to remember that the other people that you're working with aren't just sets of ideas. They are people with their own lives, their own personal challenges. We've all been living through the pandemic for the last two and a half years. So, for example, when I work with co-authors with young children, uh, as we have uh, one uh, in uh, the audience for the uh, podcast uh, right now, um, it's going to be a little bit more challenging uh, for them necessarily to meet deadlines. But it's not just uh, people with young children. All of us go through whether it's mental health issues or physical health issues for ourselves or family members. So for me, a big part of communication and respect is when you're engaged in a co-authoring relationship, you're co-authoring with a whole person rather than just a set of ideas. And so it's okay to say, I have this particular uh, issue uh, right now that's going to make it harder for me to get what I uh, promise and then come up with some sort of uh, deadline in order to uh, deliver on what you said you would do. But then also you have to be willing to hear that from other uh, people because it's been, I mean, co-authoring is hard, relationships are hard, and I think they've become harder in the last two and a half years. Absolutely, and I think that there's an importance to recognize um, that everybody has different pressure points throughout the year, be that, and especially when you're, say, working with someone in a different institution, like you're marking loads maybe at different times of the year, you may have different administrative burdens at different times of the year, and I think that that's all something that has to be factored in um, as well, and to respect when, when you're on both sides of the divide. I think as well, I, I'd, I'd push it onto an, another step. I think I absolutely agree with both of you on, on that. But I think one of the things that we also need to think about is uh, if you have a co-authoring relationship that's kind of a repeat game, you haven't just sort of 
co-authored with somebody mm. because this particular mm. niche is something you both share and you get on perfectly well and then you finish. It's something where you will be working with somebody again and again and again. The kind of moral commitment you have is different and it comes up even to the point, I would say, of sometimes it's the one person's turn, sometimes it's somebody else's turn Absolutely. to take the lead. And that might even mean really, really doing the vast bulk of the work on that paper um, and still looking at things like authoring relationships, authoring arrangements at the top and all of that, um, and keeping it consistent within within the relationship, you know. So sometimes people can't contribute so much. They'll take their turn. You have to trust that you can trust uh, within a good relationship that they'll take their turn and they'll have your back next time. Absolutely, and different people need things at different times. Again, it could be for applying for a job, one of your co-authors might need to might need to be first author yes. or, or something, and that's just something that you have to um, think, well, that's something that you have to be aware of going into a co-authoring relationship. Are you prepared to make that moral commitment, as you say, Kieran, that, that this there will be reciprocation um, on down the line whenever, whenever you, need, you need something? I think that's really important. Yeah. I mean, in general, you know, work isn't just work. And work relationships mm -hmm. aren't just work relationships because they're with other people. Um, Kira, I just wanted to finish up on, on the question, and I'll come to you, Harry, um, in general, just by way of wrapping up. Um, but Kira, first, on the ultimate value of co-authoring, do you, you know, what, what do you think is ultimately the value apart from for us as co-authors and individually, the individual kind of reward that people get out of it. Do you think there's a value for the profession, do you think, in general? Absolutely. Um, I feel that um, my own expertise has widened as a result of co-authoring with people. Um, so I feel then that I am able to contribute more to the field and I feel that not take this beyond simply research. My teaching and all has improved because I have grown as I have been involved in more co-authored um, works with other people. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I like the term research-led teaching because I find I do that, but I also do teaching-led research. Absolutely. Because mm -hmm. of yes, sorts of things. Absolutely. Um, Harry, do you have? Do you want to say something about the ultimate value here to the profession, to research in general? To me, the ultimate value of co-authoring is it enhances your contributions to a scholarly community. And contributions to a scholarly community are more than just the publications. The publications are the end point. They're obviously incredibly important. But it's the ways that you move from co-authoring relationships to building relationships at uh, conferences. So I spent a lot of time at a recent uh, conference, uh, a conference last week in San Francisco, with my uh, co-authors. But as my co-authors and I were chatting, other people got pulled into the conversation. I talked to them about my work. Uh, they talked to me and everybody else there about their work. And so all we can do as scholars is put our little bit into the scholarly conversation, whether through publications or conversations. And I wouldn't be the scholar that I am today without uh, co-authoring, but I also see co-authoring as really vital to contributing to the kind of scholarly community that ultimately creates not just great ideas, but because the work that I do is informed by values as a business ethicist, ultimately contributes, I hope, to making a better world. Okay, well, I found that absolutely fascinating, apart from when I was being glared at because I'm late with the paper. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you very much, uh, Harry, for that contribution. Thank you, Kieran. 
And thank you, Kira and other audience member for the mm-hmm. contribution. Thank you very much, Carol. Thank you. Thank you.